blame Canada and cause a fuss before someone thinks of blaming us. It seems that everything's gone wrong since Canada came along. No, you haven't stumbled onto a South Park fan podcast. This is still 35 West. I'm your host, Richard Miles. Today I have with me again Christopher Sands, a professor of Canadian studies at the School of Advanced International Studies at Johns Hopkins University. Welcome back, Chris. Thanks, Richard. So, uh, Chris, first thing i got to ask is what it's like to be a professor of Canadian studies these days. I mean, they used to be our friends and ally, now they're villain to the north. This is exciting times for you, right? It, it's exciting in all the wrong ways. Uh, normally, the Canada-U.S. beat is nice and quiet. Uh, I have an uncle who once said it was like being the Maytag repairman of international relations. It's It's got that nice, easy, mellow vibe. But now, it we're right in the middle of the maelstrom, and, and we feel it. It's definitely keeping me busy. So, no more two martini lunches, no more going home. At, at 3 p.m., right? I mean, wow. Yeah. <laughs> Two Molson lunches, anyway. Okay. All right. So I think what we want to do today, uh, Chris, if it's okay, is sort of talk about the strategic uh, outcome of all this. It's been in the news a lot uh, about the actual back and forth in the NAFTA negotiations, which started, uh, what, 13 months ago, roughly? Mm-hmm. Um, but before we do that, let's just briefly describe for listeners where we are at the moment. And we're recording this on September the 11th. So it, it seems to me, correct me if I'm wrong, that we're sort of a bit of a holding pattern here and that, uh, you know, Canada's back at the table. But there are some sticking points. Um, the ones we read about are the Chapter 19 dispute resolution mechanism, dairy management, of course. And I know there's some other things out there. Can you bring us up to date briefly? Um, you know, what are the sticking points from Canada's point of view? And what is the likelihood that those will be resolved anytime soon? Sure. So talks begin today, and so this all could be overtaken by events. But one of the things that's characteristic of this phase of the Canada-U.S. talks is that uh, Christy Freeland, Canada's trade minister, has made a point of not negotiating in public. So we know a little bit less about what's going on. There's a lot of speculation around the talks, but less leaking than we'd seen in earlier rounds. What we know is that Chapter 19 dispute resolution is a major issue. It's Canada's uh, invention for the Canada-US Free Trade Agreement. It was Chapter 19 in that agreement. It was also Chapter 19 in the NAFTA. And it provides a way of arbitrating disputes rather than litigating them in the Court of International Trade or in front of the Canadian International Trade Tribunal. Uh, Robert Lighthizer in particular, perhaps more so than President Trump, would like to see this removed. Uh, So we just do litigation, no more arbitration. And the Canadians, particularly with a number of disputes escalating, are really reluctant to see this go. Uh, But at the moment, we seem to be at loggerheads. Dairy supply management is the other issue. Uh, Both the U.S. and Canada intervene in the dairy sector uh, to keep dairy healthy uh, and prosperous in both countries. But our systems jar because Canada is trying to control supply with quotas to maintain high prices, and the U.S. subsidizes production, so we end up with surplus milk and and dairy products. Many U.S. dairy farmers look at the Canadian prices and think, oh, we'd love half of that. We would love to be able to export, but that has become a sticking point because if we were to flood Canada with our surplus milk uh, and dairy products, it would ruin the Canadian system. Canada's given up Uh, sort of quota space on supply management in the past, both in the TPP, which we could have had if we'd signed on to the Trans-Pacific Partnership, and also in the CETA with Europe. So there's some talk that that could be uh, the solution here, some sort of quota space for the United States. Those are the two mainline issues, but there are a number of secondary issues, uh, and CSIS's Scott Miller and I talked about some of these in a recent commentary for CSIS coming out of the U.S.-Mexico 
agreement in principle. One of them is the extension of intellectual property rights on, among other things, biologics and advanced pharmaceuticals. There was an extension in the U.S.-Mexico agreement to 10 years of exclusivity for the producers of these drugs. Uh, some people remember that the U.S. demand at TPP was eight years, and uh, and the, the settled amount in TPP was five. So this is a doubling of that commitment and not something Canada was particularly prepared for. At the same time, the U.S. is demanding an increase in de minimis, which is the level at which you don't have to pay duty when you cross the border. This affects ordinary people more than big companies. But uh, because there's a lot of cross-border shopping, including for milk, uh, the United States under President Obama raised their threshold to $800. So you, any American, can cross the border, stay for 24 hours or less, and still bring home $800 worth of goods. And that's U.S. dollars as well. Duty-free. Duty-free. Right. They don't have, to, don't have to do any paperwork at all. Canada has a de minimis threshold of $20 Canadian. So it's almost impossible to come back with anything uh, that meets that low, low threshold. We know that people end run it, but the Canadian retailers, afraid that better U.S. prices will attract a lot of their customers, have tried to keep that $20 limit set. Mexico agreed to increase its limit from $50 to $100, and the United States is pushing for Canada to go up as high as $200. Now, this is a negotiation. We'll come up with a number that's bigger than 20, I'm almost certain. But it's a tricky issue going into Canada's election season next year because a lot of small retailers really are politically active, and they're worried this is going to hurt and their Particularly bottom line. in your larger cities with a lot of votes. Absolutely. Um, and meanwhile, the U.S. Congress said that any deal or a number of uh, people in the Congress said any deal that doesn't include Canada is going to have trouble on the Hill. Um, now, this Congress has shown a, a reluctance to really challenge the president. Uh, is Congress bluffing here or or if indeed the, the Canadians walk from the table or uh, we just go back up to the Hill with a Mexico agreement, is Congress or anybody in Congress really going to stand and go, absolutely not. If Canada is not part of this, it's not going to happen. I think they might. And, you know, it's it's always funny to bet on Congress because as an institution, uh, it, it has many members and many members who sort of change their mind or have a moment of courage and then it fades. But, but here's why I think that they might be an important factor here. If you look at the original proposal from USTR, what they hope to achieve in renegotiating NAFTA, it's a long list of U.S.-Canada disputes with only a few U.S.-Mexico disputes even mentioned. And the reason is that along the border, we have 11 states uh, that touch the Canadian border. There are a lot of communities where Canada really matters. And these little tiny issues, often very small, really animate the Congress because it's very easy for them to vote – to, to speak out on behalf of a trade issue that really annoys them with Canada. If the NAFTA or the new agreement brought back to the Congress at the end of September, when we see the draft text, or maybe the beginning of October, doesn't include Canada, I think many members of Congress will feel that their issues have been left on the side and that they still want an answer. So what could happen? One thing that Congress can do, they've put their uh, timeline on themselves in the Trade Promotion Authority legislation um, to get the draft agreement and to get a signing 60 days after. So we're assuming November 30th, something like that. However, there is no timeline on when Congress then picks up the legislation and debates it. And so Congress could play a waiting game and say, well, we have this U.S.-Mexico agreement. We don't really know what we think. We'll hold some hearings, but we're going to wait until you bring us the U.S.-Canadian agreement so we do the match set. Now, that makes sense in a way because much of the legislation, the implementing legislation, will actually be similar 
for both agreements if there was a U.S.-Canada agreement. And so for Congress, difficult as it is to push bills through, it would be much easier for committees and for the Congress to deal with both at the same time with, say, one bill that makes similar adjustments. So I think Congress is likely to play a waiting game, and there's no clock on that. As President Trump gets closer to thinking about re-election in 2020, playing out the clock, which Congress has the right to do, could cause uh, him some heartburn, especially if he wants this win before he goes back to voters. So unless Congress is bluffing, this really does – it helps Canada. It does. And remember that in Congress, it's very easy for a senator or for a member to hold things up. Uh, now, they, they can't block votes, but sometimes they can hold things up. We don't have filibusters for Supreme Court nominees anymore, but you still can filibuster other legislation. And implementing legislation on a trade bill, You know, even a small group of members of Congress who are committed to slowing this down in the House or the Senate will have some considerable ability to do so. Okay, now we get to the strategic part of the podcast. This, this is the part that in, in two or three years, people will still be listening to this podcast and they'll say, wow, Chris Sands really nailed it. Or there'll be a laugh track, right? Because, uh, you know, we'll have completely uh, misread this. But um, let's talk about how this whole um, experience for Canada has changed the Canadian mindset. By experience, I mean sort of the uh, one, having to restart negotiations to begin with, and then two, all of a sudden become the focus of the administration's ire in terms of, you know, Canada's the problem here. Um, let's start for a moment with just the trade angle. What, div- what does this do uh, to th- – there are these calls in, in Canadian politics and economists say, hey, we need to diversify our trade. Mm-hmm. What, is, what has happened to that debate in terms of reaching out to other trading partners? Unfortunately, I go back a long way with Canada. And if you remember or some of your listeners will remember the 1970s and 1980s, Canada had an approach to U.S. trade that was we're small. We have to stick up for the Canadian business. And so they were much more willing to intervene with subsidies, with duty drawback, with separate letters of undertaking. Some of people will remember from the auto pack negotiations. We negotiated a deal we thought was fair, and Canada went to GM, Ford, and Chrysler and asked for separate undertakings for new investments in Canada that were not part of the deal, but the companies who liked Canada were willing to make those commitments to get the deal ratified by the Canadians. So Canada was a very creative but not very free market partner, and this caused a number of trade disputes, uh, frustrating the Reagan administration, the Nixon administration, the Ford administration, even the Carter administration. And that old mentality is already starting to come back. If we do a deal that most Canadians feel is patently unfair, they'll feel, I think, justified in trying to level the playing field by defending the Canadian side and providing incentives, working with multinationals to attract more activity to Canada. Um, They're very creative, clever people, and they will come up with lots of ways for us to be frustrated. This is the irony of Chapter 19 being a sticking point because – we are likely to see an escalation of disputes where the United States, to get the benefits it thinks it negotiated in a, in a new agreement, will have to constantly be bringing Canada before panels into court to try to get answers. I, so I think we've assumed that Canadians have gone free trade and that they now believe all of that. But the older sense that Canadians being small need to protect themselves is coming back. You mentioned trade diversification, and that's sort of the, the – if, if there is a, a good side of the Canadian reaction. In the last cabinet shuffle, Justin Trudeau made an important decision. He eliminated the position of trade minister. 
Christy Freeland, who's the foreign minister, is handling the NAFTA negotiation. And he replaced the trade minister with a minister for trade diversification, formerly uh, the minister of natural resources in Canada, uh, a guy named Jim Carr. And that uh, file has been focused on finding new friends and new ways to establish trade ties. That includes implementation of the Trans-Pacific Partnership, now the Comprehensive Progressive Trans-Pacific Partnership, which has no U.S., but other members are slowly ratifying. It means trying to conclude the CETA, which is the Canadian Agreement with Europe. It includes trying to revamp and maybe even update the arrangement with Mexico that is now NAFTA, but also new negotiations with Mercosur and new negotiations with the Caribbean countries about trade agreements. Canada has quite a number of trade agreements. They're still talking to China, still talking to India in long-run talks to try to create investment and other trade treaties. So Canada is going to make a big push to continue with free trade, but to find new partners. And in the short run, that's not going to change things. Canada is still quite dependent on the U.S. In the long run, for multinational firms that operate in both Canada and the United States, it will provide those firms with other ways to get into global markets other than through the U.S. channel. And that may mean that products are final assembled in Canada or most products produced in Canada because it's easier then to get them into other markets. So if the United States continues in this in this path, the best case is that Canada will be trying to convince firms and other countries that it's an alternative to get the kind of technology and know-how that has uh, made America great uh, and makes America great again so that it undercuts the benefit. I think that what the Trump administration is setting up is, is this kind of ironic moment where they will have a victory parade for a new trade agreement, but then find that the results of that trade agreement are far less than advertised because countries like Canada will be finding ways to end run and undermine those agreements. Um, Chris, let's talk more broadly now about sort of the, the, the broader effect of, of the NAFTA renegotiations. And um, I saw you on a panel yesterday creatively entitled NAFTA Apocalypse, which I like. Uh, like that creativity there. And I think it was you, um, but I'm going to give you credit for it anyway, that said basically this was a this, – this whole experience has been a shock to Canadians because they viewed uh, – where they view themselves as having a lot of solid institutional-level relationships with the United States developed over time and over the history of our two countries, everything from NORAD to you know water management, uh, International uh, uh, Boundary Commission, all these sort of things that have, have uh, solidified the relationship between two people who basically like each other. And they considered NAFTA one of those institutions. And all of a sudden, it's being questioned in a very deep, fundamental, existential way. And, it, it, you know, it's a little bit like, and I'll be careful with this analogy here, but m maybe you don't find out your spouse is cheating on you, but you find your spouse doesn't love you anymore. So <laughs> let's go with that for a moment. And is, is, do Canadians feel like, you know, the U.S. just doesn't love us anymore? They're not our friends? And, and what is that going to do, in your opinion, to the willingness, right, to – to keep working on these institutions or this relationship overall. So thank you for uh, both uh, kind of recapturing some of the argument, but also for saying NAFTA apocalypse so smoothly. <laughs> I, we worked really hard to get people I, to I, I had rehearsed that, that several tongue. times right here. <laughs> um, so, so a couple of things about the Canada-U.S. relationship. We are very similar, but we are slightly different in that Americans have always had a, a higher appetite for risk, in particular, you know, on the venture capital side or on the innovation side. Canadians have tended to look for the sure thing. Um, it's 
part of being a smaller country. It's part of being uh, in, a, in a rougher part of North America, certainly in terms of weather and so on. That they they are a little more risk averse than we are. So shattering the institutions that used to be the touchstones of the relationship is really undermining their confidence that that we're in a good relationship. Now, why have we institutionalized this relationship? First, it hasn't been very partisan in the U.S. And second, U.S. presidents, being honest here and somewhat humble, don't have a lot of time for Canada. They have global concerns. And of course, the U.S. government tends to focus on threats more than friends, and that's normal. So the way that we've managed that to give Canada the attention it needs without overdoing it, is to try to take areas of agreement and create an institution that embodies that political agreement that this is how we want to manage things. The border is a classic example. You mentioned the International Boundary Commission. We have an international joint commission to deal with waterways. That's not political. Both countries have agreed that's how they would like to manage it. And so uh, these institutions take care of the day-to-day business, and the president is never informed. NORAD is another good example. Most people in the U.S. remember NORAD every year because they track Santa, uh, you know, as he flies over North America. But NORAD allows uh, the U.S. and Canadian Air Forces to respond to airborne threats, whether they're Soviet now Russian bombers or uh, or cruise missiles or even North Korean missiles without going back to the commander-in-chief in either country and saying, do we have permission to work together? They just do it. And that was really important, actually. Some uh, of your listeners will remember on 9-11, the Canadians were at the helm in command of, of the NORAD uh, air defense at the time, and they scrambled the jets to close American and Canadian airspace to make sure that there were no more planes that were going to attack uh, American cities or anything else. That, that was a decision made by a Canadian, uh, didn't go through the U.S. chain of command or the, it, because it was clear that that was allowed under the terms of the political agreement. And if I, if I could just comment on it, the fact that people don't know that shows you how totally uncontroversial it is. You know, you had, had some sneaky Canadian controlling our <laughs> airspace during a, a moment of our, our worst national attack in, you know, since Pearl Harbor. Well, and but so, the fact that you have to say that, and most people probably don't know that, just proves, I think, our point. And, and it shows a little bit how different Canada is as an ally. You might remember from that terrible day 17 years ago that the Germans offered AWACS aircraft to help monitor airspace space under NATO, you know, attack against one is attack against all, Article 5 of the NATO agreement. And the U.S. said no, because we didn't see the Europeans protecting us. We saw NATO as a one-way street where we protected them. But with Canada, it was different because we'd already come up with that political agreement. So NAFTA is probably the most central institution in this relationship. It, it allows us to have this economic exchange. It required Canada to become free trade true believers. It was not an easy thing. It required several elections and some political courage on the part of Canadians to overcome years of economic nationalism that had had kind of settled in going all the way back to the British Empire. They made that change and now we're changing. And the political basis for that agreement is being undermined by President Trump and Trump's approach. And what I I worry about is, you know, on a day-to-day basis, our biggest economic barriers to trade in Canada are rules and regulations that require duplicative testing that create non-tariff barriers to our our trade activity. We have a lot of barriers to Americans who want to go up and work in Canada short term and longer term. We have some differential tax issues that can cause problems for, for both countries' businesses. And those things are going to require trust and hard work to resolve. Where we were before Donald Trump was with a long list of those issues that we were hoping to make some progress on. Where we are now is that we've eroded the very basis of, of trust that would allow us to even deal with those issues. And we haven't made much progress. So 
even if we get a NAFTA agreement or maybe a Canada-US bilateral agreement to replace the NAFTA we have now, the damage will be with us for a long time. And it will take time for Canada to trust us again, at least at that level. I don't think it'll matter for most of your listeners who have Canadian friends. They're not going to stop talking to you. But, But I think the structure of the relationship as it changes is going to make all the transactions across the border harder. And that's a shame. Now, one unintended consequence that, that, that may be positive is, uh, are we going to see alliances now between border states? Uh, because one thing that I was struck by was the uh, effectiveness of most of the Canadian foreign ministry, but I assume as trade folks, uh, that sent delegations to probably every single state, but particularly the U.S. states that had heavy trade with Canada, and sort of educated them and made them aware here to the number of jobs and the relationships and so on. And as you mentioned earlier, you've got 11 border states. They obviously all have a stake in Canada. Um, are we going to see maybe sub-regional alliances growing, uh, you know, between a group of U.S. states and a group of Canadian states on a particular uh, issue, a trade issue? Um, so even as Washington and, and Ottawa perhaps move further apart, you start seeing these cross-border alliances. Is that going to mitigate this in any way? Or are too many things wrapped up in, in national tariff structures to where you know they, they just can't overcome that? In my view, that, that's something that was coming anyway. Um, one of the interesting things about NAFTA is that it's an arrangement between three sovereign federal governments, and it creates institutions that are inferior, not superior. So unlike the European Union, where we delegate uh, power from national governments up, the U.S. and Canada have only delegated power down. But the level of states and provinces have never had a formal structure for cooperation. It was only a few years ago when Colorado Governor John Hickenlooper tried to host a National Governors Association meeting inviting both Canadian and Mexican uh, premiers and uh, state governors to come and have a subnational uh, conference of, of governments. It didn't succeed, but now you're starting to see those relationships really grow. There are, in the Council of State Governments, uh, regular meetings of legislators between provinces and states on the Canada-U.S. border. We have governors' meetings. The New England governors meet with their Atlantic Canadian premiers. Great Lakes governors meet with uh, Ontario and Quebec premiers. The Western Governors Association also meets with Western Canadian premiers. And At the end of the day, I mentioned earlier that trust was eroding. Trust is often the byproduct of close personal contact. And as much as Justin Trudeau has tried to have good relations with Donald Trump, there's been much more ability for a state governor to have FaceTime with a provincial premier and work on anything from infrastructure, emergency preparedness uh, in case of a, a of a natural disaster like the hurricanes we're now thinking about in the South, uh, providing line workers to put the electricity back together or, or doctors to help, uh, help people who might be wounded. They're working on projects uh, in terms of educational exchange. How can state universities uh, develop internship programs or exchange programs with Canadian universities? particularly where you're looking at innovation areas like um, health sciences, where med schools on two sides of the border can draw into different uh, private sector communities and government sources of funding to build real centers of excellence that require regular exchange. This is something that we're going to see happen more and more. There's one downside risk that I do worry about, and that is that in this interaction, it's often state provincial. And I do worry that 
For many ordinary Americans, Canada will seem more like the 51st state as this continues, that the government of Canada working great with states but not having the best relationships with Washington may seem in some ways diminished in American eyes. Now, that can actually day-to-day be fine, but I think we'll grade on Canadians who want to have it both ways. They want to have good relationships with neighboring jurisdictions, but they also want the respect that a sovereign partner is due. So. Chris, a perfect segue into my next question. You're obviously reading my mind here. Culturally, what is this going to do or has it done to Canadians recognizing that, you know, from our nation's foundings, right, there there was a difference here. Essentially, a big chunk of Canada was loyalists who said, you know, no, we want to stick with the crown after the American Revolution. And they they went north. And so from the the beginning, there there has been a significant difference in sort of the worldview and self-identity. Are we going to see a resurgence of Canadian nationalism? I mean, is, is Molson going to bring back its I Am Canadian campaign with some updated lyrics and, you know, or uh, – and then remembering what was interesting about that particular campaign is it, uh, it defined Canadianness as really only in, in contrast to the United States – if I, if I remember it correctly, I mean, you, you probably do drink more Molson than I do, so you're probably more familiar with their ad campaigns as well. But correct Strictly me. for research purposes. <laughs> exactly. Um, what, what's, going, what's going on there, if anything, at the at sort of cultural, broad political level? Well, I think that's uh, that you're, you're tapping into something very profound. You know, Canada's really changed. When that I Am Canadian Molson ad, which you can still find on YouTube, uh, came out, that kind of out. Uh, spoken patriotism wasn't really uh, wasn't really the done thing in Canada. Canada had, uh, but it was very popular. It was very popular. It, it really surprised people at how much it tapped into uh, a vein of, if not nationalism, patriotism, and and real pride in Canada that was there. Canada, for most of my lifetime, uh, was still a majority a country that was a majority where the majority of people had come from Europe, either uh, Great Britain, France, or even other parts of Europe. But today, Canada is much more multicultural. Uh, the third large, most spoken language in Canada is Mandarin. Uh, about 20% of the population has its origins in South, in South Asia or East Asia. The country is becoming more diverse, more dynamic. And thanks to all of the pressures of globalization and global communication, many Canadians find that as they travel, their brand is, is well regarded and that they can be a friendly face for North American business. That, I think... Means that Canada may find a much more willing set of partners globally as kind of the um, the good twin as opposed to the evil twin of North America that is now the United States. And for people who are looking for uh, not not a trade deal in the most uh, you know mechanical sense, but a partner with whom you can innovate, develop ideas, and so on. You just look at the number of great Canadian cities that are on the most livable cities in the world list. It the, the Canadians have created something really special. They're very proud of it. They know that U.S. commerce has been part of that story, but they see themselves distinctive. If there's a dark side to this at all, uh, we're going to see an election on October 1st. We probably won't see the U.S.-Mexico trade agreement text on that day, but we might. And many Quebecers are looking to more nationalist alternatives to the the centrist uh, liberals who've been governing or do govern now. Uh, a return to Quebec nationalism, maybe in a different flavor, could uh, sort of upset the apple cart by shaking up the Canadian Federation and, and causing a little bit more political instability. And this is where I think Trump knows but doesn't appreciate uh, the the undertow he's creating for, for Justin Trudeau and for the Liberals because many provincial communities are questioning the strategy on NAFTA because – 
for all the niceness Trudeau has bestowed on Trump. He hasn't gotten results. And I think at, at this moment, Canadians are searching around for alternatives. I know they're entrepreneurial, clever people. They will figure out one. I just like that alternative to include us and not be in spite of us. And of course, uh, Trudeau himself faces national elections next year, right? October 2019, right? Yeah, October 2019. Canada, uh, as a parliamentary democracy, has um, you know this ability to call elections. The government can fall, uh, but they adopted fixed elections in the fourth year of a five-year mandate. Unless there's some reason that you don't have it. So we're assuming the election will be October 21st in, in 2019. We're about a year out from that, a little bit more. And every, just like with U.S. elections, when you have a fixed date you know, and everyone sees it coming, they start getting ready. And so it's a very political time for Canada. All of this occurs at a time when, when Justin Trudeau has to be thinking about re-election and his opposition has to be thinking about what advantage they can get uh, in telling Canadians we could do a better job. No matter what, I think the winner of the next election will be the one that convinces Canadians that they will stand up for Canada. And the downside for Donald Trump is the winner of the next election will be the prime minister he will see probably until he leaves office, even if he gets a second term. And it will not be the nice guy that Justin Trudeau has been. Even if it's Justin Trudeau again, it'll be a prime minister who has won an election on on being tougher and sticking up for Canada. And that's going to have a whole new gloss on our, our bilateral negotiations, not just on trade, but on, on the whole gamut. Well, this will be the irony of ironies, because, you know, of course, in the recent Me- Mexican presidential election, a lot of people, myself included, forecast that both NAFTA and uh, relations with the U.S. would be a major issue. And in fact, they weren't. It was corruption and violence and surprisingly little discussion of trade or the bilateral relationship with the United States. So if we see a Canadian election in which actually, you know, that is one of the main issues, sort of definition of U.S.-Canadian relations, something I think no one would have predicted several years ago that that would be a major issue for a Canadian politician at any level. It, we're living in bizarro world. There's, there's just nothing. Nothing is what we would have expected just a few months ago. So I know you're going to bring this podcast back for the blooper reel and catch me out on all the things I got horribly well, wrong. Chris, I keep vowing never to have you on the show again because I'm convinced we'll be done with NAFTA and and you'll go back to your quiet. Uh, you know, you just you just read in the library. And no one calls you up, but uh, uh, damn it, you know we we this negotiation keeps dragging on and. Uh, we're probably going to be back in six months uh, asking about whatever happened to the. I'm looking forward to some desert cave where, like Obi Wan Kenobi, I'll be there until you send R2D2 to tell me that uh, I'm your only hope for a podcast. Okay, R2D2, you're dating yourself now. You're, that's Star Wars one or two at the most. But, okay, um, Chris, always a pleasure to have you on, and I'm, I have a feeling you will be back. Uh, but until then, uh, best wishes. Thanks very much. 